humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Ash Shepard, Director of Business Development for Carbon Capture, Utilization, and Storage at Talus Energy. You may know Talus Energy because they are one of the largest independent producers operating in the Gulf of Mexico. In August they made an announcement that they were the winning bidder for a carbon capture and storage site in partnership with Carbonvert. Today, I'm excited to talk with Ash about Talus Energy, about CCS, and what this means for the offshore energy industry. Ash, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to Talus Energy. Yeah, sure, Joe. First, uh, thanks a lot for having me on today. I'm excited to participate and share Talus's story and how we became what we are today and where we're trying to go here in the near future. Uh, So a little bit about me. Uh, I'm kind of more of a commercial joint venture negotiator. Uh, Originally went to college uh, at SMU and then transferred a little bit about halfway to St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, uh, where I graduated. Uh, Once I graduated, I actually decided to take kind of a gap year and and moved abroad to Argentina, uh, where I spent a year trying to to button up some Spanish fluency and and travel the continent. And it was an absolutely amazing adventure down there. Um, When I returned to the United States, I had the very unique opportunity to move up to Washington, D.C. Uh, where I was a presidential appointee uh, of President Bush's to work in the Intergovernmental Liaison's office at the Department of Energy. Uh, It's a real funny story how I ended up getting there, Uh, but at the end of the day, we oversaw all of the White House's energy policies and tried to integrate those with the congressional committees and drafting legislation and ultimately trying to get things passed uh, through the House and the Senate. Uh, At the time, Clean coal was kind of a big deal. They were just inventing the technologies that are involved with the uh, scrubbers. And I think they had allocated upwards of a billion and a half uh, to put to work, uh, but ultimately uh, that didn't go forward. But once uh, I spent about two and a half years there, came back to Houston with my fiance, who I had met in Dallas, um, came back, went to law school at South Texas College of Law, and upon graduation entered into the offshore energy business where I've been uh, ever since. And it's been absolutely amazing. Uh, Currently, I've been with Talus Energy for a little over seven and a half years and find myself actually uh, back in school, uh, getting my MBA at Rice. 
and also being part of the energy transition business unit that we just set up earlier last year. That is a, it's very interesting. And a lot of, a lot of things that we could talk about there with, with your time abroad and your time in DC, which for some of us may seem like another country, but I, I love how you ultimately ended up back in Texas because as a, as a Texas transplant, I am very much in love with Texas and, and think it is, it is the kind of the epicenter of everything. And I think it's very interesting that here in, in the Texas Gulf coast is where we are starting these carbon sequestration projects, at least the, the offshore portion where, where we're starting to see what that looks like. And, and Talus Energy is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the, was this the first carbon sequestration lease that was, that was announced in the Gulf Coast? At least offshore, it certainly is. And um, a little bit, you know, about Talos. It's, uh, it was formed kind of in 2012, around then. Uh, really smart, young, dynamic leader uh, by the name of Tim Duncan uh, had gone out after a couple of successful uh, build and flip companies and had raised uh, you know, $600 million from Riverstone and Apollo uh, to put to work along the Gulf Coast. Uh, shortly around that time, oil was was cooking. We were back uh, over $100, which is where we almost find ourselves today, which is a long time coming uh, if you've been in the energy business for the past seven years. Uh, we actually met in Colorado on kind of a work trip and ended up on a golf cart together. And we had a chance to talk over the course of 18 holes, and little did I know that you know less than a year later, uh, they'd be thinking about IPOing the business, and, and they were blowing and going and growing. And so he invited me to come over and, and be a part of their their land group. And uh, ever since then, I've played a number of different roles here at the company. Uh, but you know, together with this management team, we've grown this to a publicly traded company that's uh, currently producing. Uh, about 66,000 barrels a day. And we're excited to be a part of the energy transition, which is a team that we put together roughly around last April. Yeah, that is, that is a really exciting story for, for Talis and, and how you find yourself in positions like that, ultimately being a game of a round of golf leading to a, a relationship that that now puts you into this energy transition role as you worked through Talus for the past seven years. Can you tell me more about the energy transition arm that that I guess you're helping start there at Talus? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think as as we think about ESG as a company and where we want to be on environmental and safety. You know, there's going to need to be some level of energy transition story uh, for any kind of publicly traded company going forward. I think your investors are going to demand it. I think the public's going to expect it. And I think, quite frankly, as stewards of natural resources, we want that for ourselves as well. Um, so, you know, as we were thinking about our inaugural ESG report, you know, we looked at the different 
avenues and technologies available to us to participate in being a part of the energy transition. Uh, we looked at offshore wind, we looked at solar, we looked at you know some of these renewable fuel efforts that are going on. Uh, and then we looked at carbon capture and we looked at the skill set you know as a team of, of what do we have as an oil and gas you know company that could complement one of these energy transition industries and it became pretty clear pretty quick that carbon capture sequestration uh, was clearly something that we could participate in and had all the correct skill sets to allocate resources towards that from the subsurface to the reservoir modeling to the land acquisition to the midstream and, and throughout the value chain so it just felt like it was a natural fit for us yeah that that makes so much sense and that is often one of the things that that I get asked most as a geologist being in geothermal whenever anybody's asking me how do I get into geothermal and it's a, a oil and gas geologist oftentimes I say well there's there's all the subsurface it's all the same the only thing is you're you're trying to figure out a specific use case in in your case right now we're talking about taking carbon and storing it underground and and leaving it there. In my case, we're talking about finding hot water. In an oil and gas geologist's case, they're, they're trying to find the hydrocarbons to produce. So can you tell me a little bit more about the, the CCS project that you were awarded with your, your partner in this, Carbonvert? So that way, I guess it's been a few almost half a year now. So if people haven't haven't been keeping up with it, let's just remind everybody what what exactly this project is. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, this is a, a great example of the state of Texas trying to play a leading role in the energy transition space. So it was roughly around, I guess, uh, last March or April where we were, uh, you know, at the time I was managing the land department for the oil and gas business here. And our CEO, Tim, said, look, you know, if, if we're gonna be a participant in this energy transition and we wanna be a leader, we need to deploy resources now and capture opportunities as fast as possible uh, before the Chevrons and the Exxons and the BPs of the world start spending tens of billions of dollars, because uh, that's hard for a, smart, a small independent to compete against, right? Uh, so we, we got a team of six people and each had their respective disciplines and you know they were kind of the lead horses within the company in their disciplines to come together investigate opportunities and try and capture some projects and so it was roughly around that time we met carbonberg uh, where we looked at the glo the general land office uh, and they had come out with an rfp for i believe roughly about two hundred thousand acres offshore jefferson county uh, which is kind of in the Beaumont area. It's not very far offshore. It's uh, a couple miles, and it's roughly in about 40 to 50 feet of water, uh, which for an offshore operator is really an easy operating environment. Uh, and so we looked at the RFP. We, we saw that we could submit non-conforming bids. So at the end of the day, we spent the better half of 30 days, which was the amount of time we had to respond. Uh, creating a very fulsome document and bid structure 
that we felt that would be competitive, and we actually submitted uh, a couple bids, three or four, uh, that ranged from the entire 200,000-acre set all the way down to the 40,000 acres that ultimately we've been deemed high bidder for. And so that process is ongoing. Uh, we're very close to executing the lease with the state of Texas. I think what we all realized at the time was when we were going through the document um, that we wanted to be very thoughtful about how we thought the first offshore CCS lease should look. And so we've spent a lot of time uh, with their attorneys uh, coming to some what I think will be a great baseline document for industry to come. That's a really interesting point that you bring up. The the fact that this is the first and the fact that you are you are setting a precedent with with the documentation, both from a legal standpoint and and really from a from a workflow and a methodology on on how you can perform this in a in a sustainable, safe sort of way in in the offshore space. From from all of that work, do you have a an estimate on the amount of carbon that you are expecting to sequester at this site? So overall, you know, one of the great things about being an E&P company, as I mentioned, is that you know, our operational experience fits squarely within the CCS space. And one of the things that I think made our bid extraordinarily competitive was is that we already had the 3D seismic licensed over this entire region. So we were able to do a very thorough geological model on the structures and how much you know, pore space we thought there was available. And ultimately, we think that this uh, project could conservatively hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 million tons. So help me put that in perspective. What does that mean in terms of, of say, how much, how much carbon we're, we're producing on any given year? How does that compare? Well, that, that's the interesting thing right now is, is that I believe right now the world is only uh, sequestering roughly 40 million tons a year. And so uh, you can kind of see how much of a road we have to go as an industry and, and how there is room for everybody within this space because we have plenty more emissions than we do sequestration projects. So as we think about this industry proliferating, uh, there's plenty of carbon for everybody. Yeah, that I did not realize that we're sequestering really. And that, that's what's so exciting is that we're at the very precipice of an industry that has an incredible amount of scalability and growth. Um, you know, if you think about all the companies coming out with their 2030 or 2050 initiatives, uh, to be carbon neutral or carbon negative, CCS is really one of the best industries to materially sequester that carbon. And we're fortunate to have the incredible geology along the Gulf Coast that could make the United States the world leader in carbon sequestration. Yeah, that's a really a really good point. And I think a, a good thing to talk about, especially as we're talking about the, the budding carbon industry and kind of where we are today with with ESG initiatives and with the 
Q45 tax credit. I'm curious, since you you and, and Talis, y'all were doing this six months ago, what what was the what was the viewpoint of CCS? Like where does this fit into the whole corporate business model? And I guess a, a follow-up question, how has that changed just in the past six months with everything else changing? Sure. Well, I, I think where it fits in the in the business model is a, is a couple different areas. You know, one, it's the right thing to do. And, and I think any oil and gas company going forward is going to have to play some role in the energy transition, whether that be from you know, some of these more renewable fuels, hydrogen, um, methanol, or uh, ammonia, all the way to offshore, onshore wind energy. And, you know, CCS for us just made sense. And, you know, as an offshore operator, uh, we actually have some of the lowest carbon emitting barrels in industry. Uh, we're extraordinarily highly regulated uh, by the federal government. We're not allowed to flare in case, you know, uh, other than an emergency. Uh, so our barrels are some of the lowest carbon produced barrels in the world. And, and we're very proud of that to do it in a safe and effective way. Um, so for us, it fit perfectly naturally. And also as we think about building out an oil and gas company and trying to scale Talos to, to where we are today, at maybe 65, 66,000 barrels a day, getting us to 100 or 120,000 barrels a day. Uh, we think that being a carbon neutral or carbon negative counterparty will facilitate our M&A on the oil and gas transaction side as some of these larger companies have to think about divesting their assets to meet their own internal goals. We want to be an ESG responsible counterparty to help facilitate those transfer of kind of midlife assets. That's a really important point that you make and, and a very... I guess a, a very realistic statement that that as Talus Energy, y'all want to grow. You want to almost double in size in terms of the the hydrocarbons you're producing, but at the same time, you also want to be carbon neutral or even carbon negative, which in today's environment gives you a it makes it makes you as the as the buyer almost more attractive to a potential seller because it is, it's not, it's not hurting their CO2 footprint and their ESG initiatives. In fact, it, it probably helps them. And that's a, it's really interesting to think about that and to think about the 2050 goals and net zero goals and where, where we're going to be as a society and where oil and gas is going to be as a society at 2050. Because I, I am, I guess I always say that we, we have all of these necessities for hydrocarbons and those necessities aren't going away very quickly. And the replacements are, are not springing up as, as quickly as we need them. So I think that, that that kind of business model where it is a 
where it is a, instead of an either or, it is a both and. I think that's really smart. And, and I guess I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> well, that's okay. Cause I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, our, our philosophy here is that look, we're, we're not going to apologize for being an oil and gas company that safely and reliably delivers hydrocarbons uh, to obviously the largest economic powerhouse in the world. And, and we are uh, privileged to do it. Uh, we love to do it. And, you know, as we think about these transitional technologies in the energy transition, we all, if you look at it from a reasonably objective point of view, whether you like oil and gas or you don't, objectively, it's going to take several decades uh, for the world economies to divest themselves from hydrocarbon consumption. And so to think that, you know, we're going to immediately be able to transition out of hydrocarbons into EVs or hydrogen or any of the other transitional fuels is, is just not uh, currently available. And so, yes, they'll slowly and surely be offset and we'll play a part in that as well. Uh, but we also are an oil and gas company and are proud to be it. I like it. I like that statement. I am curious as we, it's something that's sticking with me is, is the fact that you said offshore oil and gas is an offshore hydrocarbons are one of the lowest carbon footprint barrels that we can produce. Is there, can you, can you explain that a little bit? Where do these numbers come from? And, and I guess what I'm also thinking about is how does that, how does that fit into the future as what I see? I've never been offshore. I've never really worked offshore. And I see offshore as being one of the, one of the most difficult places to work in terms of regulations and in terms of, of project cost and project, project um, logistics. So I have always thought offshore would be one of the first things to go in the energy transition. But as we talk, I am, I'm, I'm kind of backpedaling on that thinking maybe offshore is going to be one of those spots that, that thrive in the energy transition. Sure, Joe. I mean, I, I'll be happy to point you to some uh, reference materials. You know, I think that our, our annual ESG report will, will outline the lower carbon intensity of offshore barrels. And I know organizations uh, that focus on offshore energy production like NOIA have done studies uh, to compare that because, you know, when you fly over West Texas or North Dakota and you see uh, giant flares uh, all over the all, <laughs> all over the state from the airplane or wherever else you're, you're driving through, uh, you'll never see that offshore. You know, we're, we're very highly regulated by the federal government that really clamps down on our ability to admit. Uh, and so that that's largely what goes into that when you think of flare gas out in West Texas or the fact that there's not a lot of gas infrastructure. Uh, same thing could be said for, for North Dakota. Um, all that gas is being released into the atmosphere, uh, whereas that's not taking place offshore. So that, that, that's large part uh, what helps us be kind of more of a, a lower carbon intensive barrel. Uh, secondly, you know, obviously the offshore environment is uh, an interesting place to work. It's challenging. Uh, there's not a ton of infrastructure, uh, but at the same time you find uh, 
hopefully larger reserve sizes that allow you to do standalone facilities and uh, long pipelines to, to tie in laterals to get your production you know, all the way to shore. Uh, it is a challenging basin in a sense that you know we keep being pushed further and further into the deep water as uh, the shelf had been picked, uh, picked over pretty good over the past 50 years. Uh, now you're seeing the, the deep water get into more uh, high pressurized zones, more subsalt, um, more high pressured reservoirs, which present their own challenges as we think about increasing technology. Uh, so it's it's certainly around to stay, uh, but it is it, it can be challenged when you have a very low uh, commodity priced environment because it is expensive when you think about drilling wells. Uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to $120 million a piece in the deep water. That is a, that's a hefty price tag for a single well. It sure can be. I mean, it's, it, I, I tell you what, it, it makes everybody at the office very interested when it's time to look at that initial log across the, the, the objective. Because, uh, you know, if you just spent $100 million on the right thing or the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that is a very expensive lesson, whether it's a good lesson or a bad lesson, hopefully a good lesson. Well, the nice thing about the offshore reservoirs is you know, even with that, a kind of uh, you know, high cost, if, if you can, if you can hit what you're looking for, uh, you know, one out of every three or so, then, you know, they should be able to pay for themselves. So it is, you know, there are, very large reservoirs offshore. Uh, luckily, we've been able to find several of them ourselves. So it's it's been a good basin for us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of cost, something that that we've been asked at PetroLearn multiple times is the idea of repurposing, repurposing wells, repurposing platforms, and and I see it coming up in the news for the North Sea and people discussing this idea for other areas in offshore oil and gas production. I'm curious, as as Talis is looking into and is one of the largest operators in the Gulf of Mexico, what are your views on repurposing and how, how do you, I guess, have you done any type of analyses on repurposing platforms or repurposing wells? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and throw out my uh, my disclaimer to all my engineers friends, engineering friends that'll be <laughs> listening to this episode who are going to be yelling at me afterwards that uh, I, you know obviously I'm not an engineer, but I do have a commercial background and have a lot of experience, you know, with with some of these types of things at least mm-hmm. on paper, right? When we're thinking yep. about you know transacting, even in oil and gas, it's been extraordinarily difficult to repurpose structures. Uh, for one thing or another. Uh, you know, most of these infrastructure pieces are designed fit for purpose for that particular project. And so when you move from one type of geology to another or a different water depth to another, it, it, get, it gets very challenging to use existing infrastructure. I, I think ultimately you'll see industry try and change that when you start thinking about some of the floating production facilities that are in the deep water and how can you engineer those to be detethered and towed to different deep water fields as they come online. 
but just historically, even on the shallow waters, it's uh, I can only think of perhaps one time where we've ever been able to reuse a jacket uh, for a different project. And, and most often than not, it's it's cutting new steel. And maybe that's because the engineers really want a new project and want to go out to the yard and watch something you <laughs> built. Or maybe it really is that challenging. I'll, I'll leave it up to the viewers. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, when you think about, you know, transitioning an oil and gas asset into a carbon capture asset, uh, that that introduces a new level of complexities that I don't know that we're ready to, to face. You know, from, you know, what do you want to reuse a well bore? Well, I don't, uh, I don't think that that's the case. I think you would want, you know, if you're going to get a Class Six permit, you're probably going to want a new well bore. Uh, with different metallurgy, uh, different well integrity of something that had been previously drilled. And, and right now, where, where are those offshore leases going to be? We don't really know. I mean, we know where ours is with the General Land Office, but we don't know where the next RFP is going to be. We don't know what region that will be. Uh, and we don't know when the federal government's going to get on board with CCS and start offering those leases for sale. Um, and so it's very difficult to say that any current infrastructure will be reusable in this space offshore. Uh, and then I see kind of a note on whether, you know, you can do solar or wind on some of these existing facilities. And, and, and the short answer of it is yes, but not materially. They're, you know, they're fairly small structures, uh, even in the sense of some of the larger deep water platforms. And, and so... Do we use solar and wind on our facilities? We absolutely do because it helps reduce uh, you know, our, our energy demand uh, from diesel generators or other power sources that we have offshore. So we do implement those technologies, but that's not really scalable when you think about powering the neighborhood or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that these these platforms are are actually pretty small when you think about comparing the platform itself to the ocean that it's in or comparing it to the footprint of a solar farm that that you see in West Texas or that you see up in anywhere in the Southwest. It, it really, I guess what I hear you saying is that you can produce something at the surface on the platform itself but ultimately that has to have a purpose and right now that purpose is is pretty obvious it is either either producing oil or for the the future case a fit for purpose ccs project whereas just having a platform that that is now no longer an oil and gas platform it it makes it just kind of a a vacant house that's in the middle of nowhere. There's not much value there. Is that is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, I think that's extraordinarily fair. You know, when you think about you know oil and gas assets onshore, one thing that you typically would find is is that would be somehow near some sort of electricity um, corridor. You know, some some way to get power to these facilities. And when you think about the Gulf of Mexico and how large uh, an ocean that is, it, it, there is no energy infrastructure, so to speak. And so to think about laying transmission lines uh, tens or even hundreds of miles from shore 
uh, you would need a, a pretty significant project uh, to be able to sanction something like that. I don't know that you could find a project big enough to sanction that kind of investment. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I've seen are the ideas of of the offshore wind farms and then ultimately having all of those tie back into a single electric line that goes back to shore. But I don't I don't think those were super deep offshore. I think they were they were fairly fairly close. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And and to kind of round out the point that we've been talking about, you know, these oil and gas assets that we're talking about repurposing are not typically very close together. Uh, so you're going to need a cluster of offshore wind uh, infrastructure like what you were talking about that's somewhere close to shore and, and part of the same grid. And, and you just don't see that with current oil and gas uh, infrastructure offshore. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, let's. Uh, I think that's a good a good way to end that idea. But I'm curious. We the winning bid was announced at the end of May. We are now mid February. Can I ask where is the project right now, and what kind of what are some things that are happening in the near future? Sure. So uh, we are finalizing our negotiations with the state of Texas. You know, as I mentioned uh, previously, uh, when we started taking the lease form from the RFP, uh, I think the state, uh, rightfully so, wanted to make sure that we had a document that was really fit for purpose and really captured all the things uh, that a lessor and a lessee that's doing the first offshore CCS lease in the United States would want to see as best practices. And so the state's been extraordinarily thoughtful about their lease negotiations. Um, we've tried to be a great counterparty as well uh, to come up with some different concepts as a, as a lessee uh, that we think we would want to see. And, and then I think what you're seeing is the culmination of best practices from both parties. And we're excited uh, to be wrapping this up. And I think you'll hopefully see something you know, in the near future. Uh, with that, the state has been absolutely phenomenal to work with. They've got an incredibly talented team of individuals that are helping them. And, and I think as you think about future RFPs coming from the state of Texas, or maybe even in other states, uh, this lease form is going to be uh, an extraordinarily strong lease form for CCS for, for everybody to use as a baseline. And we're excited to be a part of that history. As far yeah, as the operational, I'm sorry to cut you off, Jeff. I, I was oh, going to no say, as, as part of the operational side, you know, clearly we have uh, done a tremendous amount of subsurface work and modeling. Uh, we've gone in and started doing kind of the plume modeling. How do we view plume migrating through that certain section offshore? Uh, where do we think we would best locate our injector wells? Where do we think the best location for our monitoring wells are? Where do we think the best location for our pumping stations are going to be? And what do we need to do on paper today to get ourselves in a position to drill a stratigraphic test well as soon as possible and get the class six permitting process kicked off. So we're doing a lot of all that back office work 
that you can start before entering into a finalized lease. Uh, but once we do have that behind us, we'll be able to really kick off the operational side of this project, and we're excited about that. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. One last question before we completely shift gears. How do you see and how do you think that CCS is going to change the oil and gas business model as a whole? Well, it's, it's going to be interesting, I think. When you think about oil and gas traditionally, when you think about having your dollars go to work in a a 30% type IRR uh, project, when you think about allocating capital, it's going to be interesting to hear the conversations at the board level with saying, well, here's a low rate of return business, uh, but how does it overall help the broader business succeed. Uh, so when you have a dollar and you're trying to allocate it, and you have an opportunity to put in a 30% return business versus maybe a, a low teens rate of return business, you got to be able to justify that and, and you got to be able to defend it. And I think what these oil companies are going to find is that by integrating the energy transition into their baseline business plan, ultimately it's going to open up more doors for investors to enter into the space. I think, uh, you know, if you've been around the banking community for the past couple of years, you're seeing mandates from certain uh, capital providers not to be in fossil fuel investments. Uh, and, and you're seeing the cost of capital for traditional and gas lending going up. And so I think if you kind of look at the broader picture of introducing a lower rate of return business into the overall oil and gas business, Maybe you can smooth some of those things out. Maybe you can get some investors into your business that otherwise might not have been able to come into it. Maybe you're able to find new sources, lower sources, uh, as far as lower cost of capital to help you fund your business moving forward. So I think it's actually going to be an increased level of optionality for companies uh, to find other sources uh, of revenue and credit that otherwise they may not have had access to. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and, and insightful view. And it's something that I've been I've been saying for a while now, especially with geothermal, the the 30% that you quoted earlier is a it's a hard number to hit for geothermal, but the difference in that long term return on investment and the difference in the carbon footprint and the ESG value of something like geothermal, I think is is one of those aspects where it it's a lot harder when you're just looking at that that percent IRR to make that case. But it sounds like it is just like CCS, it it's slowly becoming not just the idea of what is that return, but what is the impact of that investment so it's it's starting to become a a more challenging maybe in some ways a less quantitative or more complex calculation but i think that's it is the world we live in it's a complex world and there's a lot of moving parts you're absolutely right and you know at the end of the day the hope is that you know, not only the, the CCS business 
you know, helps us offset our carbon emissions and, and helps put us in a carbon neutral negative position. And I think that's what you'll see companies strive for, uh, you know, but also you're, you're in, in turn generating maybe a lower rate of return business, but an annuity payment over the course of 10, 20 or 30 years. And so, you know, that, that's a different revenue stream model than I think the oil and gas investors are typically uh, used to when you think about high decline wells and, and things of that nature. Yep. So it's just a different way of thinking about things that I, I think is just beginning to take place because, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the forest from the trees, but when you really unpack everything, it makes a lot of sense to have this as part of, you know, the baseline oil and gas business. Yep. Yep. Well, with that, let's jump into some final questions. These are a little bit more fun, a little off topic. The first one What's the most important book you've ever read? So the most important book that I ever have ever read, and I've read it uh, three times, and I've listened to it on tape one, uh, tape once, is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Uh, that, that book had a tremendous impact on, on me and, and how I think about things and uh, kind of the, you know, just oh, a no. great industrial book. And the, and the fact that it was written so long ago and, and yet is so applicable today to what we're doing, uh, you know, as, not only as an industry, but as a society. Uh, I just felt it was uh, really one of the most insightful and incredible books I've ever picked up. It's, it's about a thousand pages or 1200 pages. So it's a decent, it's a decent read, but uh, once you get in there, it, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of those books that there was always that, that um, that book report scholarship when I was applying for for my undergrad, and there was always that opportunity to read Atlas Shrugged, write a book report, and I think it was the majority of people would get five hundred dollars just for doing it, and then you were in the running for a more substantial scholarship. And every year I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it this year. And then I would pick up the book and never start it because it is such a dense book that I just could never get over that, get over that mental block. But I think you're the third person who has also recommended it on the show. So it is, it is going to get added to my list. Yeah, no, I, I highly recommend it. And, uh, it, it but it was, uh, you know, I didn't enjoy the movies as much as I did the book, and, and they kind of broke up the movies where they didn't capture the same cast uh, for the different ones, but um, mm. the book is definitely the way to go. Okay. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? That is a great question. It is very similar to asking me about what oil prices are going to be uh, tomorrow. <laughs> and the answer is nobody absolutely knows. And anybody that tells you that they do, you should uh, <laughs> you should worry about. Uh, it, it depends so much on not only uh, government policy, but also kind of societal demands and, and geopolitics. You know, it's, it's one thing for us in the United States and perhaps in Western Europe to get involved and say, look, this is going to be a big industry for us and we're going to pursue it with everything we have. 
Uh, it's a high, highly capital intensive business, and, and as we mentioned, low rate of return. Uh, so there going to needs to be some support from the government, and, and that has, in that sense, I think you see that with the current conversation around the 45Q tax credits. Uh, and then over in Western Europe, uh, the government's willingness to fund projects. Uh, but if some of these larger industrial countries overseas uh, don't take it seriously and continue to increase their coal uh, footprint, you know, coal-fired power plants and, and less uh, renewable sources of energy electrification, uh, which they have no incentive not to at this point uh, because they're growing economies, at the end of the day, it's going to be hard to account for their increased emissions if only a couple people are rowing the boat, so to speak. Um, so, you know, while these 2030, 2050 goals are, are great, and most of them are just specific to that particular company, which is interesting in itself for a company to say, hey, we hope to have 30 years, our emissions under control. That kind of gives you a scope of how far we have to go. Uh, as a world, if we're going to be serious about that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think so too. And it it is interesting to think about the the simple fact that any one company could say we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, but ultimately there are how many other companies out there? So even if that one is carbon neutral, the the amount of carbon intensity that any one individual still has is going to is going to still be quite high so it this is one of those things that that a lot of guests go back and forth on is is it going to be policy driven or is it going to be be consumer driven or is it going to be just plain private industry driven and and i think you're you're spot on in saying that it it really is going to require everything and and total buy-in. So it it's not a it is a full society question and it's not just just one company or one country or one half or one one hemisphere. It is everybody needs to be on board. That that's absolutely the fact. I mean everybody's gonna need to be rowing in one direction. Us as a society and a, you know, as a as a world are going to need to come together and you know really decide if, if we think that this is a, a serious issue and, and how best to solve it and uh, you know that obviously takes many different shapes and forms uh, and we've seen it with some of the Paris Climate Accord agreements in the past and we're in it we're out of it we're back in it and so it's you know, there are efforts being made uh, but we have a long way to go for sure. Yep. So the last question is, what one question do you have for me? Well, that's interesting in itself. I mean, I, I think the one question I have for you is, how did you get into the idea of podcasting about energy transition and, and the different technologies? I, I think, and I've heard a couple of, of your podcasts before, and they're mostly, I think, from more technical people. Uh, you know, I appreciate you allowing a commercial guy to, to come on and explain his side of the story. Uh, they usually try and keep us locked up. Uh, but it, it's been a pleasure being here. I'm just curious how, you know, podcasting was the answer for you and, and what you were trying to convey 
to the industry? Yeah, yeah, that is a good question. And I think it it is a it's an ever evolving answer because it's it when so this the show is on the oil and gas global network and the the energy transition solutions show was was being hinted at by by the the founder Mark Lacour and he was he was talking about it saying we need to have a renewable show people are asking about renewables we're going to have this show it's going to come out eventually so me being a i guess i've i've always been kind of uh i like this word counterstream and i've always been kind of going against the grain in that i i've always seen the value of being outside i've always enjoyed being on my bike as opposed to being in a car and i've always gotten and i've always i've always felt a a almost a responsibility to be to be a good steward of the earth and through that and through mark hinting at the show i was like i want to help out in any way possible so after after i think it was about five minutes of talking on the phone he said i want you to be the host and at the time i was like well i i don't i don't know if having a podcast is the way to help others see the the value of being outside in nature and being a good steward of of the natural resources that we've been given but i said sure and and through this process i am i'm realizing i think that i'm learning more than than my guests and maybe than my audience which is completely selfish on my part and i'm totally okay with it but then there's also the aspect of the the idea of the energy transition it spans so much to one of my favorite guests that that I had on was the Farmers Business Network. And they are talking about regenerative agriculture and ultimately helping farmers get more money for their product by helping the environment and farming in a sustainable way. And that's something that immediately impacts all of us. And then having, having you on and having operators on that is a very real, very technical, very direct solution that may not be a may not be something everybody is going to interact with. I think this is a perfect example where I've never been offshore. I probably never will be offshore, but understanding the offshore oil and gas and CCS side of of energy is important because right. Because we we don't want the lowest carbon fuel to ultimately be taken off because of the because of the public persona. And let me, I don't let me think throw that, that would plug. be good. Yeah, and let me throw a plug out to all the hardworking men and women in the offshore community. I mean, these people are incredibly hard workers. They're good people, and, and they go out. You know, they go. They show up to a shore base. They jump on a helicopter. They fly out to these 
Iron Islands, and they spend two weeks at a time uh, working 12-hour shifts, you know, on these offshore production platforms, away from their families, away from their friends. Uh, you know, they, they really are the heroes of, of the offshore energy community. We're just real proud of them because they show up to work every day. Yeah, thank you for adding that plug. And, and yes, thank you to all of the offshore oil and gas workers. So I think, yeah, I, I guess being able to celebrate the energy industry and celebrate what we are all doing to not only be better stewards of our environment, but also give everybody the energy they need to have a healthy, sustainable prosperous life. I think that's, that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm, that's why we're having these conversations. So Joe, based on your, your, your answer to that question, I, I kind of jumped on a, a follow-up question out of all the interviews that you've done on the different various energy transition technologies and industries, does one stand out to you to be kind of more viable than any of the others? I mean, what, when you come away and you start you know, comparing the different expert opinions that you hear on your show from this or that or geothermal or solar or wind, you know, what to you after aggregating all that data, what you say, you know what, this makes sense. Yeah, so the the obvious answer, and I am biased, is geothermal. Geothermal is is going to be the base load, the foundation of the low carbon energy future. I will, I will go to my grave saying that. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully by then it will be, it'll be a fact and it'll just be natural. (laughs) But, uh, it is a, there is no silver bullet. So as I say, geothermal is the foundation it is only the foundation. The rest of the energy industry has to be, has to be built. The rest of the house still is, is the rest of the house. And another guest called it the energy basket because it really is a, a full spectrum of everything in there. So it is, I think, uh, uh, to answer that it, we need geothermal, we need CCS, we need, better solar and we need better wind but we one of the big things that we that we need more than anything is cooperation and collaboration and finding a way to combine everything into a cohesive and a cohesive energy basket that really satisfies all our needs. And I, I, I'll give one example here. One of, one of the things that, that we are working on at PetroLearn, we call it a synthetic geothermal reservoir. The idea of that is that you've got geothermal in certain places around the world, but then everywhere else, say the Permian Basin, it's just simply too cold to have geothermal energy. But the Permian Basin is a great location for solar energy and in some respects for wind energy, especially if, as you move further north and east, you get more and more wind. So why not take that solar energy, take that wind energy, 
store it down into the subsurface, use the earth as a battery, in this case, a thermal battery, and take your, take your 10 gigawatts of wind power that we currently have in, in Texas. But the problem is we only get about 30% of that. So really of the 10, we only get three. Maybe if you store that other seven through conversion and through production, you'll get maybe another three back. So we can take our 10 gigawatts of installed wind capacity and turn that from its current three up to maybe a six by going in and storing that in the subsurface where we can. And that's a great example of combining what some people would say incompatible technologies into something that is now going to help us get to that net zero world that, that we all want. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, and that I guess that's how we all need to collaborate and why we have to why why we have to share these stories. Totally agree. And I appreciate you allowing me to to share my experience in what is going to be a very exciting industry. Yes. Ash, thank you very much for joining me on the show and sharing sharing everything that that y'all are doing. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Just that, you know, Talus Energy wants to be one of the leaders in the CCS space. Uh, we're looking for other opportunities. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to give my email if anybody would like to reach out uh, directly to discuss potential projects to work on together. Yeah, go for it. Great. Uh, so Ash Shepard. So it's Ash, A-S-H dot. Shepherd, S H E P H E R D, at Talos, T A L O S, energy.com. And we look forward to having a conversation with you. Well, Ash, thank you very much again for joining me on this episode. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN or link on, on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. In this new year, I encourage you to try something new. You can start by trying out a new office, such as the Canon in Houston. If you mention OGGN, they will give you a free day pass. It's where I work when I'm in Houston, and it's also where OGGN has their monthly industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.